morning. Can you hear me? Okay, good. I would like to direct your attention again to uh, the book of Exodus, chapter 7. We have been going through a series on uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ in the book of Exodus. Uh, And today I want to speak to you uh, from chapter 7 about God's undeniable, invincible power. God's undeniable, invincible power. Uh, let's, Let's begin with prayer. Our Father, in the name of Jesus, we come to you and we thank you because you are good and you are gracious. Father, thank you for your Son, Jesus, whom you have sent into this world to live perfectly, to die sacrificially, to be buried solemnly, to be raised sovereignly, to be enthroned majestically. Father, we thank you for your Holy Spirit who has been sent, and we thank you for your word. Uh, that we come to, to listen to what you have to say. Father, please help me to speak uh, what you have said here in the way you want it spoken. And we pray that we would leave edified, refreshed, built up in our faith and fixated on your son Jesus. Please make us more like him today than we have been before. We ask this in Christ's name, amen. Uh, Exodus chapter 7, I want to begin reading at verse 8. Exodus 7, verse 8, please hear God's word. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts." For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Have you ever uh, heard someone say, or have you said yourself, um, come on, I need proof. I don't believe that. Show me the evidence. Or no way, you have got to be kidding me. These statements are often spoken and often heard in the face of unbelievable claims, impossible odds, or the demand for some kind of life-altering commandment. You know, when Jesus Christ comes into your life, He changes everything. He is the Lord, and that means He's the Lord of every single aspect of who you are and what you're about. 
And when you hear the message of your sin and of the saving grace of God and you're called upon to yield your life fully and finally to Him, it's life-altering. It changes everything. Sometimes that's the response we get is, you've got to be kidding me. I have to change all of these things. I've got to bow my will to every single thing you say. Well, actually, yes. And that's what the Lord was doing here in the life of Pharaoh and in the life of his people through his servants Moses and Aaron. He sent them, he commissioned them to go down to Pharaoh and announce a takeover. Announce a cry of freedom and a cry of judgment coming to Pharaoh's house. Because actually, Egypt belonged to God. He made it. It was his. He owned it. He owns everybody. The earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof, the world and those that dwell therein. Everything belongs to him. And what had happened in Egypt over the course of 400-some years is that God's name and God's claim had been ridiculed and put, put aside and a man had lifted up himself and Pharaoh had all kinds of lofty opinions about himself and about his kingdom. And in our passage, <clears throat> the Lord tells Moses and Aaron what they're up against when they confront Pharaoh. That what will happen is that Pharaoh will have this posture and this attitude that you've got to prove it to me. Not because he's really interested in believing in the Lord, but because he feels like it's not worthy of his time unless you prove something to him. But when you are called upon, like Moses and Aaron were here, to take a stand and to speak for God to hard hearts, you also will be challenged. I'm sure that you have, in the process of maybe sharing your faith or sharing Christ with someone else, have been challenged <clears throat> to prove something, to show some kind of evidence, something physical, something tangible that people could go away with and, and have their desires met. When the Lord sends you to share, you will be challenged. But in the face of challenge, you need not be worried or anxious. The Lord is up to every challenge. And actually what's going on here is that the Lord is actually challenging Pharaoh more than Pharaoh actually challenging the Lord. The Lord is coming to Pharaoh's house and he is challenging him to a duel. Because Pharaoh has these lofty opinions about himself and about his kingdom that he has elevated above the true knowledge of God, and thereby he has made himself <clears throat> an enemy of God. <clears throat> Not only an enemy of God, but he has made himself a slave of Satan. Because what's really going on behind the scenes here, as we continue to read, we find and discover in chapter 12, verse 12, that the Lord was executing judgments against all the gods of Egypt. He was executing judgments against the demonic realm, the spiritual realm. Because whenever God's truth is challenged, it's a spiritual battle. It's a spiritual challenge that's made against God. And God here as the great eternal spirit 
that needs to be worshipped in spirit and in truth, he comes with a challenge to Pharaoh and behind Pharaoh to all of the demons and the darkness and the Satan himself who stands behind Pharaoh's resistance to the will of God. That's the same challenge that we come up against when we endeavor to share our faith. We hear the Apostle Paul as he ends a, a great letter to the Ephesians What he says there, that letter begins in a worship service. It begins by blessing God for all of the blessings that we have in Christ Jesus. And it ends on a battlefield. It ends in a sanctuary and it ends in a a struggle, a wrestling match where we're called to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might and to put on the whole armor of God and to know that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. People are not the enemy. The devil is the enemy. The wicked spirits, the demons, the powerful dark forces, the wicked spirits in heavenly places. That's where the enemy resides, and that's where the enemy wants to do battle. But when people give themselves so willingly to lies and to deception from the devil, they become one with him. They become one with him. It's... it's, Scary to think sometimes that even Peter, when he resisted the plan of the gospel, when Jesus announced what would happen to him in Jerusalem in order to overthrow Satan finally, that Peter said, this will never happen to you, and Jesus' response was, get behind me, Satan, speaking to Peter. Because in his desire to bypass the necessity of the gospel. He aligned himself with the enemy. We need to be careful. That's what Pharaoh had done in believing the lies that he had held to. He had aligned himself with Satan. And so God aims to attack the dark spirits that are influencing and impacting Pharaoh and his people respectively. Pharaoh had lofty opinions, and Moses and Aaron were told to go and to take Moses' staff, and Aaron was to cast it to the ground before Pharaoh, and it would become a serpent. And you can't miss the fact that this talks about a serpent. You can't miss the first serpent talked about in the Bible. Genesis 3, the devil, and how the devil came into God's Eden and challenged the authority of God. The same serpent there in Eden is the same serpent that's behind Pharaoh's resistance to God. One author wrote, the Egyptians were fascinated with snakes partly because they were afraid of them. Many of them made amulets to protect them from Apophis, the serpent god who personified evil. It was this fear of snakes that led Pharaoh to use the serpent as the symbol of his royal authority. His ceremonial headdress, which I'm sure you've seen in the excavation of King Tut's tomb, the idea Uh, was that Pharaoh would terrorize his enemies the way a cobra strikes fear into her prey. 
The crown symbolized all the power, sovereignty, and magic with which the gods endued the king. By Pharaoh wearing that crown that had that serpent on top of it, he was claiming all of the authority of the serpent as his own. That he would go about and strike nations with fear and terrorize them with his power. And so when, when Moses comes and Aaron casts down his staff and it becomes a serpent, it becomes the very thing that Pharaoh and Egypt held in high esteem. But Moses was doing it. Aaron was doing it. It wasn't Pharaoh. That God went into Pharaoh's house and took his image of authority and his image of protection and he threw it down. And so, just as they did that, Surprisingly, maybe, Pharaoh summons his servants. He summons his wise men. He summons his sorcerers. And they, it's highlighted, the magicians of Egypt. You know, it's often been shown that in Egypt, even to this day, you can take a cobra. Uh, I'm not going to do it, but uh, some people have and you can actually press a certain spot behind their head and they become as stiff as a, as a staff. They become paralyzed, and when you throw them to the ground, the jolt wakes them back up again. But the Bible here highlights that they did this by secret parts, secret um, arts. And so you cannot fail to see that what's going on here is demonic. It's not simply a sleight of the hand. But Satan has power. And as one author said, his power is real, but his power is not absolute. And so you shouldn't uh, be afraid to see that Satan could potentially be permitted to give power to these people to actually turn stabs into snakes. Because God is up to something. He's aiming to prove something. God is going to fight with the gods of Egypt. When you are challenged, you must stand, stand for God's truth. The plan of God that He gave Moses and Aaron is a huge statement of the Lord's imminent takeover. When Moses and Aaron threw that, that staff down and it became a serpent, and then Pharaoh's men threw their staffs down and they became a serpent. Someone has compared Moses' action to a person taking a bald eagle into the Oval Office and wringing its neck. When God confronts other gods, He takes aim at His enemies. The author said, greatest strength, he, he overwhelms it with superior force. And that's exactly what God did here. Although Satan's henchmen turned their staves into serpents, Aaron's, serpents, Aaron's serpent swallows up their serpents. It may have been hard for Pharaoh to Admit, but it's not hard for anybody else seeing to admit who's really in charge here. 
God's serpent swallowed Satan's serpents. And in Egypt, understanding to swallow something like this was to absorb all of their power and all of their authority into yourself. And so when Aaron's staff turned serpent, swallowed all the other serpents, it sent a message to Pharaoh. It sent a message to all of Pharaoh's, Pharaoh's men and all of his magicians that all of your authority has been stripped from you and now belongs to the Lord. It's all been taken away. You know, you see this in the person of Jesus when, when He was crucified and Rome had a way of humiliating people. It had a way of stripping people naked and, and taking them and parading them through the streets for all of the people of Rome and all of their subjects to view and see. And it was a way of Rome saying, see, we stripped this person. We've taken all their authority and all of their power. Now we're going to crucify them and rub it in their faces that we're in charge here. But the Bible says in the book of Colossians, and we have said this again, it's a repeated theme that comes up in this, in this book, that when that was happening to Jesus, what really was going on is that Jesus was stripping the devil of all of his power and all of his authority was being taken from him. He was binding Satan up. He was the sovereign man who had entered into the strong man's house and he was plundering all of his goods, taking all of his captives back. Jesus, as it were, humbled himself in order to exalt the name of the Lord and to see it proclaimed throughout all of the world. We find it's the same thing that God was doing here in the life of Pharaoh. One of the summaries you find in this, uh, of all of the plagues is in chapter 9 where God says to Pharaoh, I have raised you up for this very purpose. I could have killed you a long time ago, God basically says. I could have done away with you ages ago, but I have raised you up for this specific purpose that I might demonstrate how powerful I am, God says, so that my name might be proclaimed in all the world. So the likes of a Canaanite named Rahab might say, I've heard and I know and I believe, and so that you and I would know and believe as well. God overwhelms all of, of Pharaoh's power in symbol by this serpent from Moses and Aaron swallowing all of the serpents of Pharaoh. And by that action, God also takes back authority over the serpent. In the Garden of Eden, Satan was permitted and allowed to take the serpent and use that serpent as an instrument of deception. But the serpent was made by God. That's how Genesis 3 begins that the serpent was more crafted than any of the animals that the Lord God had made. The serpent belongs to God. It's, it was still a good creature when God made it. And God takes that serpent back in this action and demonstrates that he's the one who has real authority over all. This is what the Lord did with the serpent, and this is what God does through you. When you wisely listen to people, expose the false gods that they serve, 
and take their beliefs and apply the gospel of Jesus Christ to what they are convinced of. People all around us, and even we, sometimes fall into the trap of believing false lies, false opinions. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, it calls us to be witnesses. And this is what it says, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. What is it in your life? Is there an idol? Is there a false god that you're holding to? Something that you're convinced is true, but really it's not. Maybe it's about money, living for money, getting the most money. Maybe that's the idol. Maybe it's pleasure, just doing things that bring you pleasure. Maybe it's just doing what you want. Maybe you're your own idol, and it's your sovereign authority that must reign supreme. And if you take those realities that sometimes we falsely believe, sometimes we fall into, those traps that we we fall into, and you apply the truth of the gospel to them, they always come up wanting. They always are missing out on something beautiful and wonderful that God really has for you. That was Satan's problem, and that was Pharaoh's problem as well. Satan thought he was too beautiful. He thought he could raise his throne above God. Satan convinced Adam and Eve that they could be gods. They didn't need God. They could make their own rules up. They could be like God in knowing good and evil and determining their own way in life, not answering to anybody. That's the trap that we often fall into. And we believe the lie. Satan asked for a miracle to be formed. Jesus said it's a wicked and adulterous generation that asks for a sign to be given to it. And the implication is when God has already proven himself so clearly. The heavens above declare that there's a God. Everything in this planet proves that there's a God. You prove that there's a God. We believe the lie of evolution. Someone respectfully called it devolution. We believe that it wasn't God that started everything. Science tells us this, and we must believe science because they've proven it. They've got the evidence. How many times has science been wrong? How many times have science textbooks had to be rewritten because they figured out they got it wrong? They found a bone. They said it was our ancestor, but they realized it was actually a pig, and they had to put it down and rewrite the textbook. Science is always rewriting stuff because they're always discovering new stuff. 
First it was T-Rex. He was the worst dinosaur of all. Then they found something bigger than T-Rex. Now they found something a couple weeks ago that's even got stronger bite than even the one that was bigger than T-Rex. There's always something new. And they always have to rewrite everything. It doesn't mean that science is bad, but it means that science must be informed by Scripture. And science, even science, must bow to Scripture because Scripture is God's Word, never been disproved yet. Many competitors, many challengers, but never a winner. God is always victorious. We look for signs. You remember the rich man in Lazarus? He died and went to a hot place, and Lazarus died and went to the bosom of Abraham. And it was there that he cried out, Father Abraham. Please send Lazarus back to my family to tell them about this place. And the response was, they have Moses and the prophets. He said, oh, no, no, no. If, if someone comes from the dead, they'll believe them. And the response is, they have Moses and the prophets. If they don't believe Moses and the prophets, neither will they believe if someone rises from the dead. Because often the problem is not a lack of evidence. The problem is a hard heart. It's just a heart that won't believe, won't bow to Jesus. Because it's a false belief that I'm really not that bad to need something like Jesus on a cross, in a tomb, risen again. I don't need recreation. I just need some kind of help along the way. I need some better advice. I need some better guidance. But a brand new genesis, a new creation, I need a complete makeover. I used to have a show called Ambush Makeover because people just walked down the street and saw somebody who they felt was in bad shape and they would just ambush them and give them a free makeover. How insulting. Do I look that bad that you feel like I need to be made over? But they had a show that, that people did that. That's kind of what God is doing. It's an ambush makeover. But it's done with gentleness. God is, God is confronting you and saying, you need a makeover. You need to be recreated. You need to be changed. You need, to, you need a startup, a, 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 a literally like the Bible says, a new genesis, a brand new beginning. And sometimes we don't think we need that level of help. Just let me read some kind of book and, and that'll help me out. Pharaoh didn't think he needed help at all. He thought he was God. He thought he was in charge. He thought he was the Lord of the land. And I don't need any kind of person claiming to be God. And so Moses' truth, you know, we often talk about my truth. What's your truth? It's such a stupid way to talk. There's only one truth. It's God's truth. It's either true or it's not. Is it true for you? It's not true for me. It may be true for you. It may work for you. What works for you? It's just foolish talk. There's only one truth. His name is Jesus. He's the way. He is the truth. He's the life. You can't get to God the Father unless you go through Jesus Christ. In the book of 2 Timothy that we read responsibly, this very episode is highlighted in 2 Timothy chapter, chapter 3. 
Hebrew tradition, these, these sorcerers, these wizards, these magicians are given, given names. In, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, uh, it says um, there, uh, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money. Listen to this list and ask yourself, does it sound like my heart? Does it sound like your heart? For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, and listen to this, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. It says avoid such people, which by definition means avoid being such people. They have an appearance of godliness. Pharaoh's men had an appearance of a spark of divinity. Look, we can do exactly what you guys, Moses and Aaron, can do. Satan is a counterfeiter. He has nothing original. He's a copycat. He's always copying what God does. But it's never authentic. It's never pure. You know, you can make, you can, you can take three good eggs, as someone once illustrated, and you can make a, a perfect omelet, and it looks wonderful. And you can take two other eggs and one rotten egg and mix them all together and make an omelet that looks exactly like it. But one is good to eat, and one is not good to eat. The incredible edible egg, right? But that's what Satan is like. He's a counterfeiter. It, he makes it look authentic. And when Pharaoh's men threw their staffs down, it looked like the same thing, but God's snake swallowed theirs up. It's these descriptions that are given here that we are to avoid. It says that to avoid this, but not only this, it says, for among them there are those who, who are always learning and never to arrive at the knowledge of truth. The knowledge of truth, the Bible says, always leads to godliness. And so that's why your truth and my truth don't work because they don't lead to godliness, but God's truth leads to godly living. And it says in verse 8 of 2 Timothy 3, just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth. They are corrupted in mind, disqualified regarding the faith, but they won't get far. And Moses' opponents didn't get far either. It was, it was not long after this particular incident that Moses' opponents realized they were not up to the challenge. That at one point, Aaron strikes the dust and it becomes gnats and, and Pharaoh's men try to do it and it doesn't work. It all breaks down and they're able to say to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. Even they're admitting it now. And so these men oppose the truth. They're corrupted in mind. And, and Paul goes on to say to Timothy in the same letter that Timothy is to be devoted to the truth. The truth of the scriptures is what he highlights. He says in verse 15, as you move on in that, in that chapter in 2 Timothy 3, 
But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have been firmly believed, knowing from whom you've learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. God's Word can bring salvation. No other word can. It brings salvation through faith in Jesus Christ by presenting Jesus Christ. He is the one, interestingly enough, on the cross who received all the plagues of God, as it were. Egypt was plagued in order that Israel might be delivered. And Jesus was plagued in order that you might be delivered, that everybody who believes in him might be delivered. He was plagued with the wrath of God, the very judgment of God against Satan and against sin, against the grave. It all fell on Jesus. Not against Satan, but against sin and against our sin. Someone wisely said, although Satan has power, his power is not absolute. In chapter 7 of Exodus, verse 12, the serpent of Moses and Aaron swallows up the serpents of Pharaoh. And the same word that's used there is the same word used in chapter 15 of verse, verse 12, where, where Pharaoh's army is swallowed up in the Red Sea. That this action here in Pharaoh's court anticipates that God has already won the battle. He's already won. He's already defeated their deity, their object of worship. A friend of mine once said that when you go out and share the gospel uh, with people and you find out where their trust lies, one of the best ways to convince people of their need for Christ is to find out what they're counting on and then show them why it cannot be trusted. This is what Moses was doing. This is what you and I are called to do. This is what Paul told Timothy to do, is to avoid all of this evil behavior and trust the Word of God. Trust Christ Jesus and prove yourself an evangelist. You know, a friend I know from Nairobi, Kenya, once told me that people will believe your Redeemer when they see your redeemed life when they see the change that's actually happened in you. Jesus said it like this, love one another, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And that's often where the battle is mostly intensely fought, is right here in the church. Jesus said to the Father in prayer, Father, make them one so the world might know that you have sent your Son. Listen to that. Father, make them one. Those who believe, make them one. Make them united. Then the world will know the gospel. They'll know that you've sent your son. Jesus says, love one another. By this, all men will know you are my disciples. And it's often a breakdown of love in the body of Christ. A breakdown of unity in the church that shipwrecks our evangelism. It's of no effect because people look into the church and they say, where's the love? 
Jerry Maguire was asked, show me the money, told, show me the money, and the world is saying, show me the love. Where is this love you talk about? Where is this redemption you talk about? Where is this change in your heart and in your life? Where is it? Where is it where the world sees the will of the church bowing to the will of Jesus? Because Jesus says, you know, Jesus always gets what he prays for. He always gets what he prays for. He says, the Father always hears my prayer. He always listens to Jesus. Because Jesus always prays according to the will of God. So there's no, there's no need for more evidence. There's need for repentance. You know, we talk about random acts of kindness. That's unbiblical. Acts of kindness are not supposed to be random. They're supposed to be the reality of a, of a believer's life. And they have a trajectory. They have an aim. It's the kindness of God that leads people to repentance. It's the love of God seen in your life. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. That's not random. That's a setup. It's a gracious setup so that someone else might know the truth of God. And that comes with the, the greatest sign that was ever given. God doesn't need to prove Himself any more than He's already done. He doesn't need to give more evidence to you or me or anyone else. God gave the greatest proof. He gave the greatest evidence when He showed up in the flesh. He gave the greatest evidence when He lived a perfect life and He died on a cross. When Jesus Christ hung on the cross, that was the sign that topped everything. Only to be topped by the resurrection from the dead, proving the truth of the cross. The resurrection shows that the cross took that Jesus' death for sin and for sinners is real. And if you come to Him and you confess your sin and perhaps you don't think of yourself as a sinner, well, think of yourself in light of the Ten Commandments. Do you follow them perfectly even in your heart of hearts? Not just outward appearance stuff, but inward position stuff. You've never lusted in your heart. You've never told a lie in your heart. You've never had hatred in your heart. That's where Jesus is looking. God looks at the inward being. We look at the outward appearance, but God weighs the heart. Pharaoh's heart was hard. And many have mentioned how there used to be a belief in Egypt that the way your heart gets weighed depends whether you enter into the afterlife eternally. That if your heart was too heavy, and that's literally what's said here about Pharaoh's heart, it was heavy. If your heart's heavy, it gets eaten up and you get condemned. But if your heart is light as a feather, free of guilt, free of sin, then you're set free. How's your heart today? When, when God has already demonstrated evidentially, He's proven Himself at Calvary. He's died on the cross, literally. He's been buried as a corpse. Jesus was dead to bury your sin in the depths of the sea, never to rise again. But He rose again with all power and authority to give you a brand new life. That's proof positive that God loves you. That's proof positive that God wants you free. That's proof positive that God has judged your enemy, Satan. How's your heart when you think about that evidence? Go back and search out that evidence at the cross. 
Go search out the evidence of Jesus' wounds. He's proven himself already. He doesn't need to give you any more signs. There's no sign that could top Calvary and the empty tomb. What are you doing with that sign? It's not only spoken to those who may not believe, but it's spoken to those who believe. What do we do every day with that sign of the cross? It means death to sin, a brand new life for Him. Living each moment for Him, bowing your will daily to Jesus. That's, that's, that's what He calls us to. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross every day, daily, and follow after me. Be willing to give up your life so that he can rule you. You know, that's like the man who was in a field and found a treasure in the field. And when he found the treasure, he was so excited and so joyfully went and sold every single thing he had just to buy that field. Is that the posture of your heart when you see the evidence of Christ on the cross and out of the tomb? That you're willing to give up any and everything. You may not have to give up everything, but you're willing to give up any and everything. Why? So that Jesus can have his way with you, so that in all of the particulars of life, whether it's pleasure, whether it's money, whether it's sex, whether it's your job, whether it's whatever it might be, that you're willing to give the reins to Jesus and say, just do whatever you want to do with me. And all that I have, just do whatever you want to do. It's all up to you now. I bow to your sovereign will, Lord Jesus. I want you to prove every day, Lord Jesus, that you're the one ruling my life. Is that our attitude? Is that your attitude? It wasn't Pharaoh's attitude. Take a lesson from a hard heart like Pharaoh and don't go the way that he went. It ends badly. It ends buried. It ends with death. It ends with judgment and condemnation. But take all of your sin, all of your baggage, all of your weariness to the one true God. Every deception, every lie, bring it all to Jesus and say, here I am with all of my struggles and all of my sins and all of my rebellion, all of my wealth, all of my resources, all of who I am or could ever potentially be, and I bow before your cross and I ask you to fill me with yourself and run my life completely. That has to be our posture if we're going to overcome. Jesus is willing to rescue us from evil. He wants to do that. He wants us safe under His sovereign reign. But it happens with repentance. It happens with faith, believing in what He's done at the cross, believing what He's accomplished. And the Bible says that when you do, victory is given to you. Listen to these words in conclusion that the Apostle Paul gave to a weary church wondering whether it was worthwhile. Hear these words. He said, 
I tell you this, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. And the mystery, he says, is we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised and perishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When it happens, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass this saying that is written, death, just like Pharaoh's serpents, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And he concludes by this fact, because of that victory, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. God's power is undeniable. His power is invincible. Let his power live in you, changing you, and work through you, changing the world. Let's pray. Our Father, in Christ's name, we come and thank you for this passage where you demonstrated such power in the presence of a hard heart. Pharaoh didn't need more evidence. He had it all right there, right in front of him. But his heart was heavy. Lord, I pray that our hearts would not be heavy in the face of the greatest sign of all, the cross of Jesus Christ, the empty tomb of Jesus the gift of the Spirit, the creation of the church, your power at work in us. May we daily bow to you, Father, Son, and Spirit, and allow your work to work through us. Give us grace to yield our lives, to yield our will daily to you, and work through us that our love for one another, that our unity in the body, that our godly life would signify to everyone we encounter that you are real, our Father, Lord Jesus, Spirit of the living God. You are alive and at work, advancing your kingdom for your renown. We ask that you do this through us. In Jesus' name, amen. Ask today that we would Pray our confession of sin corporately together. Let's let's say these.